Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups, or at least with partners. You get better discussion that way and better accountability. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org, and we have ongoing Zoom groups available if you're interested to shoot me a message. In the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week's show, we covered a lot of Isaac's story in Genesis, his encounter with Abimelech in chapter 26. And then we backed up to chapter 25, where we're introduced to uh, Rebecca and the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau. And we concluded with the first uh, serious encounter between Jacob and Esau as they battled over the birthright. And it wasn't much of a battle, if you remember right. Uh, Esau sold it to him for a bowl of soup. And so we talked about that at great length. Previous episodes are available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify for that show and all the other ones. On today's show, we're going to continue and pick up really the second crucial encounter between Jacob and Esau as the blessing is on the line. And we'll pick things up in chapter 27. Lord, be with us today as we try to understand your scriptures, how they help us understand you, your character, your promises, uh, and what you want from us and for us. Lord, help us to be obedient, to follow faithfully. Uh, Help us to learn from the scriptures uh, so we can Uh, follow you and obey you and serve others and love you more effectively in the days to come. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station and the show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. This week, the bulk of our time will be spent in Genesis 27, and it's the second of two stories where Jacob gets the birthright and then the blessing from Esau. Chapter 25, which we covered last week, Esau sold the birthright for a bowl of soup. Now, the birthright was the spiritual side of being the firstborn son, and Esau wasn't interested in that at all, so he sells it for a bowl of soup. Here in chapter 27, the question is going to be the blessings of God, and so the double portion, and this is more the material, physical side of it. And we know from chapter 25 that Esau is not that interested. We also know that Rebekah has received a prophecy that Jacob would be advanced or would receive the blessings uh, and the promises that have been extended to Abraham and to Isaac. So the birthright has resolved itself, but we still have to deal with the question of the blessing, and that's in chapter 27. But before we do that, I want to do the passage immediately before and immediately after chapter 27. We'll start. Both of these have to do with Esau and who he marries, and that provides some other important context for us. So we'll start in chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, son of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So both parents are grieved that Esau has married two pagans. He does get married at age 40, which is the same age 
age as Isaac in chapter 25, verse 20, but he steps right into polygamy, for one thing, uh, and to pagans on top of that, which makes it even worse. Now, this is a pretty important detail to some stuff that's going to show up later in chapter 27, so I'm glad we're talking about it today as well, because Rebecca will find in this vital leverage and a pretext to reconcile Isaac with Jacob and to give Jacob a legitimate reason to leave to find a proper wife. We'll see that in chapter 27, verse 46. In context, it's also our second demonstration on why Esau is unfit to carry God's blessing and covenant going forward. Again, we had the soup trade in chapter 25, and this story sets up the big deal chapter in 27 and the story there. At the end of this story, and some verses we'll read in just a minute, He's going to marry a daughter of Ishmael, which is seemingly an improvement, but still outside the Abrahamic covenant. In all of these cases, all three of these marriages, the parents are not involved in setting them up. And so this illustrates his independence. We'll see in chapter 28, verse 7, that Jacob obeys his parents with respect to marriage. And of course, we've also had the story we covered two weeks ago, where Isaac and Rebekah got married by way of the instructions of Abraham through his servant. So Esau continues to be pictured as a man after his own thing. He's not particularly concerned about the things of God or following his parents for that matter. The transmission of the faith, which is such a big deal in Genesis, is not going to happen through Esau. It's going to happen through Jacob. So to the other passage, 28 verses 6 through 9, now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that he blessed him He commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebioth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. I think the most interesting word in this passage is verse 8, that Esau realizes that he has upset Isaac. Is he blind to this, or has he not been told? And I think we can find application either way. Isaac and Rebekah may have been displeased and not shared it with Esau for various reasons, good or bad. And it could be that they had hinted or even said something, but that Esau was blind to it. But whatever's happening, he understands now. And his response to this is to marry into Ishmael's line. So he does get closer to family at this point. It's not as far away as Rebekah, which is where Jacob is going to go, Rebekah's side of the family, but it is Ishmael, who is Isaac's brother, Uncle Ishmael. So what's Esau's motivation here? I think we can see this as an example of false repentance, possibly, right? True repentance would be being really sorry, but maybe he's just sorry about the outcome. Maybe he's sorry about the displeasure that he's caused here. Is this a matter of outward expression or inward conviction? Is he still trying to seek a greater blessing, as we'll talk about in chapter 27's story? Maybe it's the right motivation, but it's an improper method. He's still in Ishmael's line. Why are you picking up a third wife? Not sure that's a good idea. Uh, Maybe it's too little too late. The most charitable reading here uh, is that he is showing us the beginning of a change in character. We don't see much of Esau the rest of the way, and ultimately he is not the way that God's going to work through Uh, this family to deliver the blessing and the covenant. But we'll see him in a number of years later in chapter 33, and he's a good guy, in many ways a better guy than Jacob. And so despite his anger and jealousy in recent events, particularly chapter 27, maybe this is the beginning of a change in character. So it's intriguing to think about. 
Okay, let's start into the, the big story in chapter 27. We'll read verses 1 through 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. This is the beginning of a drama that plays out in seven scenes. And Leon Cass also notes that the word blessing appears seven times, and the verb bless appears 21 times, which is three times seven if you're keeping score at home. Now, verse one is a sobering opening, right? That he's old and blind. And it's a picture of Isaac's inability to discern, which will be on full display in this chapter. Interestingly, it's four of his five sentences are clearly defective or easily deceived, and he doesn't trust his hearing. And this is interesting, especially in a Jewish worldview, that our eyes can get us in trouble. Here they definitely get Isaac in trouble. But we're supposed to hear God's word. It's our ears. It's the hearing of God's word that is so crucial. And he's not going to trust his hearing. Likewise, Jacob, his son, will be blind with Leah and Rachel in the next generation. And we've seen trouble with eyes in Genesis 3 and 6. Jonathan Sachs says, Judaism is supremely a religion of the ear, unlike all other ancient civilizations, which were cultures of the eye. In Judaism, the highest spiritual gift is the ability to listen, not only to the voice of God, but also to the cry of other people. Verse 1 has my son and the here am I servants reply, sort of ironic and probably perverse echoes of the key moment in chapter 22 between father and son Abraham and Isaac. The motivation and the timing here is that he's old, he's wearing down, and perhaps he's near death. Now, his advanced age and the prospect of few remaining days inspires Isaac to action, and by itself, that's a wonderful thing. We should count our days as well and use them well, and if we're coming to the end of our lives, you know, let's count the days aright and use them properly. What does he do here? Well, to get a good meal, which is not a bad thing, indicates that he's into his physical senses, which is not a great sign, but it's okay, and he wants to commemorate the blessing to his oldest son, Esau. Remember that when Abraham thought he was coming to the end of his life, his top task was to get a good wife for Isaac. It's a little bit different between father Abraham and son Isaac. Now, Isaac thinks he's near death, but it turns out he's got more than 40 years to go. And he exaggerates his demise as Esau had done in chapter 25 for the bowl of soup. Remember, Esau said he was famished and about to die. And his father Isaac does something similar here. Verses 3 and 4 give us the request for food, which again was at the center of the story back in chapter 25 with the birthright and the bowl of soup. And then he promises to give his blessing. There's no mention here of Abraham or God, which is a bit strange and probably telling. Isaac seems to use Esau and the blessing to get food, again, seeming to treat the things of God rather casually. He'll give the blessing, as Esau gave his birthright, for a good meal. All of this seems to cheapen what's at stake. Isaac is portrayed as more interested in good food than in good prayer, effective communication, or equitable relationships. Esau is the perfect son to follow in Isaac's footsteps at this point, but not to follow in Abraham's to walk in God's ways. And ultimately, that's what God wants, not someone to follow in Isaac's footsteps, but someone to follow in Abraham's, but 
more directly to follow God. And neither Esau nor Isaac seem particularly impressive or driven by that at this point in the story. It's interesting that Isaac favors Esau at all. Remember the grief from Esau's wives back in chapter 26, verse 35. And often it's the case that our favoritism overlooks a multitude of sins, as it has here. Also, it's the case that we had the prophecy back in chapter 25, verse 23, that it would go to Jacob, and Isaac here decides to give it to Esau. Again, we don't know what happened there. It was given to Rebekah. Maybe she didn't pass it on to Isaac. Maybe she did pass it on, and he's ignoring that. Maybe he doesn't understand that his blessing is connected to that. Maybe he's got this cultural, traditional reflex to give it to the oldest son. Maybe it's his personal affections and natural bias for Esau. In any case, he's governed by his senses throughout the chapter. There doesn't seem to be much about faith here. Patrick Henry Reardon connects this back to the physical blindness and says it's a symbol of his inability to see what is going on. According to God's plan, his favoring of Esau over Jacob already puts him outside of God's will. His preference between his sons is not that of God. Being outside of God's will, therefore, he is easily deceived. Acting outside of God's will is a sure step toward deception. So however Isaac gets here, whatever's going on here, we're not optimistic about how this is going to end. The other thing to consider is why is Esau agreeing to this? Has he forgotten the trade that he made back in chapter 25? Maybe he's disconnecting the birthright, which he sold so easily for the blessing. Maybe he's being deceptive a bit. Where's Jacob in all this? He would traditionally be blessed at the same time. Where's Jacob in all this? He would traditionally be blessed at the same time, albeit given less. Maybe it's to preserve the intimacy of this moment, or maybe it's back to favoritism that Isaac isn't all that concerned about Jacob. And again, the the picture is complete in that regard, that Isaac is not only favoring Esau, not even putting Jacob on the same plane, when instead it's going to be Jacob who carries God's blessings forward. All right, this is a good place to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 27 today for most of our time together, and we've reached verses 5 through 10. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So the first thing that strikes us in this passage is the sharpness of Rebecca's hearing versus the dullness of Isaac's senses, particularly his dim sight. And then we have Rebecca's plan for the rest of the passage, including tasty food in verses 7 and 9. And it's connected back to the food and the appetite that we've seen a couple of times in this story. What's What to do? Well, start cooking. And so verse 7 is a wild game, is what he's looking to eat. And Rebecca looks to cook two goats made to Isaac's taste, and presumably to cover the, the taste of the wild game. So in essence, we have the full fruition of favoritism here. And one wonders if either or both are married to the child more than the spouse. But there's certainly favoritism, one parent each for one son. 
So this is as good a place as any to introduce a big theme, which is, is Rebecca pursuing God's best, but inappropriately? In other words, working for what God has already promised to her and to her family, similar to what Sarah and Hagar did, right? The promised child was to come to their family, and so Sarah and Abraham decided to work with Hagar to bring to fruit, to bring to bear what God had already promised. Or is this a bold, courageous, doing what has to be done when there's no other good choice? And we're not really sure what to do with this. Patrick Henry Reardon says, if such was God's plan, Rebecca saw no harm in moving things in the right direction. Now, as a practical matter, this was dangerous and would be discovered eventually, but maybe she's surprised at the timing of this, that Isaac has sprung this on them, and maybe it's the best she can do. She's probably caught off guard, and she's probably thinking it would be a lot more time before Isaac would do this. When we think about this question, really we're at the ethical question of do the ends justify the means? The ends were good. This is in line with the prophecy that God had given her back in chapter 25, verse 23, but the means were not. And it's taking advantage of Isaac's infirmities. It's deceptive and it's risky. Now, what could she have done? Let's get to the choices, right? Silent submission, pray, wait upon the Lord. She could try to persuade Isaac about God's plan. Tell him about Esau's trade with Jacob, remind him of Esau's character and his wives. So when do we have a passive faith in God versus an active faith in God versus when do we do nothing at all? And she's clearly not content to leave it to just, you know, how people are going to behave. She's, she takes things into her own hands. So these are extenuating but not excusing circumstances that prompt what could be considered a faithless reaction, or is she just doing what she has to do from her vantage point to make God's plan, God's promises for her and her family come come true? I think for us, it's the same question. Godliness requires more than good intentions, and are we using godly methods to pursue godly ends? It's not an anything-goes sort of approach to the the things that God has given us. God's will is not pursued through inappropriate, unethical, inconsistent means. The more favorable interpretation is that she's taking reasonable steps. She's been given a word from God. She's in a patriarchal society. She's got a blind husband who favors the son, not favored by God. She knows what needs to happen, and she's called to take action. Cass pursues this with a couple of interesting quotes. Isaac, feeble and blind, pleads for a fine dinner. Rebecca, energetic and sharp-eared, speaks and commands with authority, yet is mindful of the divine. And I don't know if you caught it, but there's a very interesting little addition in the text. Verse 7, she puts words in Isaac's mouth. She adds, in the presence of the Lord. Cass picks up on that and says, placing the Lord's name, so to speak, onto Isaac's name and also into Jacob's mind, Rebecca tries to enhance Isaac's dignity and Jacob's respect both for his father and his father's God. And that is fascinating, right? The idea that it's not just a deception. That's not all that's happening here. By adding in the presence of the Lord, she's clearly adding to what Isaac said. And and what does that mean? I think Cass is on to something there. Whatever you decide about this, remember too that the scriptures are not necessarily endorsing or claiming that we should emulate this. 
as in many other cases in Genesis and elsewhere in the scriptures, there's great pedagogical use here. We put ourselves in this position. What would I do if I were Rebecca? Backs against the wall, right? God's blessing is through Jacob. What do we do here? Okay, verses 11 through 17, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. So verses 11 and 12, we start with Jacob's response. Overall, we have his submission in this to his mother and his starring role in the drama. But his response clearly shows no guilt. His fears here are being caught, I would appear to be, And then how can we, right? He wants to know how to succeed. What what are the details here that would work? He's merely afraid of a divine or human curse and the risky attempt at the blessing. And he might have thought that having the birthright is enough back in chapter 25, but his mom is arguing otherwise. I think for us broadly, if you're worried about being caught, it's a good time to reconsider your actions or your motives. If you can't be proud of the things you're doing, that's a bad sign and a good time to reconsider your choices and why you're doing what you're doing. What would you do if you wouldn't be caught? And that tells us what the heart of the matter, but Jacob's response tells us his heart right, it's right on his sleeve. Verse 13, Rebecca takes hardcore responsibility for her part And Jacob doesn't refuse the offer. She offers to take that curse, and Jacob doesn't try to talk her out of it. And then verses 14 through 17 is the execution of the planning stage. We have Jacob's obedience early in verse 14. Cass is impressed by an element of this. He says, Rebecca holds her son through speech and command. Jacob, like the true son of the covenant, listens, hearkens to her voice, and obeys. And if he'll follow that authority in God, that is indeed a great sign. Verse 15, the best clothes that he had, presumably what Esau would have worn for the occasion, the hairy hand and neck, so we have the first Halloween here, and then verse 17, the tasty food. Now remember that Jacob's name means deceit and grasping the heel, and here he deceitfully makes a grab for the birthright with a big assist from his mom. Apparently he's passing on some traits from Rebecca's side of the family, given her snooping and scheming. And one wonders if Jacob justified himself, perhaps as his mom did, along with their methods, as the chosen one. He knew that he was chosen as well, presumably from his mom. To what extent did it help that he had a partner, especially an authority figure like his mom? He's a man at this point, so he's responsible, but it's always interesting when a parent and an authority is the one encouraging you a certain path. That certainly makes it easier to go that way. All right, verses 18 through 20, he went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. So here we have the execution of the plan. Notice in verse 18 that my father, yes, my son, who is it? Similar to what we saw back in chapter 22, verse 7 with Abraham and Isaac. And of course, the story, though, is 
rather different. Verse 19 has a fourfold lie. I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game. So he deceives here in self-identity, the supposed request from Isaac, claiming ownership over the food and identifying the goat as wild game. The first recorded lie for him, how easy was it for him? Was this a new pattern or was it something that was already established? And then the end of verse 20 is the real whopper, another lie, and here a violation of what would in the future be the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. Notice also that at the end of verse 19, he drops from the Lord. Of course, that's how Isaac had said it in verse 4, but that's different than what Rebekah had told him in verse 7. But he does invoke God to account for his success in verse 20. Is this how he thinks Esau would have said it, or is he caught off guard and he ends up arousing Isaac's suspicions with an ill-delivered line? Verse 20, he refers to, to God as your God, the Lord your God. And so he won't be Jacob's God until after chapters 32 and 33, and it'll take us a few weeks to get there. Is this all part of the charade? I mean, clearly God is not Esau's God. We already know how little Esau cares about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and eventually Jacob. Ironically, it's deceptive, but accurate. At this point, God is not the God of Jacob or Esau. In any case, he injects God's name into it, and ironically, God will give or allow him success. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of chapter 27 and the famous story of Jacob and Esau uh, and the blessing from Isaac. Remember, Jacob's already received the birthright in chapter 25. He and Rebekah are scheming to get the blessing here in chapter 27. So we pick things up with verses 21 through 23. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him, and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. So verse 21, Isaac seems clearly suspicious, come closer, and it allows for the touch in verse 22, and later the smell in verse 27, that he can touch and smell and figure out which son is which. The voice in the hands are not real clear to Isaac here. Matthew Henry observes that this is a beautiful picture of hypocrisy. His voice is Jacob's, his hands are Esau's. He speaks the language of a saint, but does the work of a sinner. Man's judgment will be, as here, by the hands. And he did not recognize him, verse 23. So you've got the words on the one hand, not matching up with the deeds. Again, a great picture of hypocrisy. Verse 23 ends with a mini blessing. The real deal will follow in verse 27. He's either thanking Jacob here or giving a generic short blessing. Verses 24 through 27, are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. So verse 24, we open with another lie to address Isaac's continuing skepticism. Verse 25, eat and drink. 
maybe just a sample, but probably the full dinner. If it takes a long time, if it's the full dinner, imagine the movie version of this. Jacob standing there waiting for his father to eat with his heart pounding, seemingly a race against time. It's interesting as well that Isaac doesn't recognize the goat versus the venison. His sense of taste lets him down as well. The kiss in verses 26 and 27 reminds us of Judas with Christ. Isaac here is betrayed by a kiss, just like Christ years later. And after Isaac voiced a suspicion three times, as Peter did as well. Verse 27 continues with the smell, and Isaac's suspicions are finally put to rest, and he gives the blessing, albeit under false pretenses. It's interesting that the most animal-like sense, the sense of smell, is decisive for Isaac. Isaac could have tested further and waited, but he felt like he'd done everything he could or should do. It seems like his inner voice is speaking to him, uh, but he's also maybe trusting his feelings too much. Either way, he probably had some concerns still, but he's done all he can do to check it out. All the evidence seems to point, most of the evidence seems to point that way, and so he goes forward with it. In a nutshell, Isaac is deceived by four of his senses, his eyes, his feel, taste, and smell, and he's not trusting his fifth sense of hearing or his sixth sense, his faith in God. There's no prayer here. And his, of course, his intent to give the blessing to the wrong son. Cass observes, Isaac does not know one son from the other. And in the sense that really matters, not only now, he does not know the proper son to bless. And that's the problem in this passage. It's not supposed to be Jacob, either through the prophecy or in their character. And yet Isaac is content to try to bless the wrong son. Verses 27 through 29, so he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So the blessing itself is late in verse 27, and it starts with an ode to Esau's smell and fields. It's interesting that no record is in the Bible of God blessing a field. And last time we read about a field, it's where Cain had murdered Abel. So that's sort of a strange reference here. Heaven's due early in verse 28 is a figurative or literal blessing. 28, earthly prosperity, material success. Verse 29, political dominion in line with Genesis 1, 28. He's fulfilling the promised prophecy, chapter 25, verse 23, unwittingly. And he's underlining God's original design for men in general and Jacob in particular. And then finally, the blessed curse formula, very common at the end of verse 29, protection, punishment, and reward. In a nutshell, Jacob here is blessed with prosperity, power, and position, heavenly position from a divine perspective. But it's interesting what's missing in this blessing, right? Nothing about land, nothing about descendants as God had with Abraham. The covenant, you've got Abraham, but none of that's here. You have a reference to God, but it's Elohim, not Yahweh. As Cass sums it up, it's a purely pagan blessing. Again, unimpressive from Isaac. Verses 30 through 35, after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. 
Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. The drama of verse 30 is amazing. You know, just in time, Jacob gets done, Isaac Uh, finishes the blessing, Jacob gets to leave, and then Esau rolls in. It resembles providence and begs the question of what was God's hand in all of this. Of course, it'd make a wonderful movie scene as well. It's interesting, if you go back to verse 20, that Jacob gave credit to God. The Lord your God gave me success, but of course, the success really is misattributed here. It's not God's approval at all, and it's Esau's timing that's determined by God. And yet that's not attributed to God at all. You know, this gets to broader considerations about God's will and our pursuit of God's best. God here is doing what he can to bring his will out of flawed human choices, as we're finding throughout this chapter. Verse 31, the meal prep Esau wants and works for the blessing. Remember, Jacob doesn't do anything, hardly. It's Rebekah that does most of the work. Verse 32 as the greeting, and verse 33 is the big oops. The blessing's already been delivered. It's a contract. It's an oath. It cannot be revoked despite the fraud. The question in verse 33, he's already convinced that this really is Esau. So whatever doubts he had, those come flooding back in. He's convinced this is Esau, and now he's trying to figure out who on earth this was. Did I give it to a neighbor? And he doesn't understand that it was Jacob. The trembling violently in verse 33 is interesting. Some combination of just anger, right? When As an economist, I would speak about this in terms of fraud or coercion. When people engage in mutually beneficial trade, no one gets upset. Go back to chapter 25, soup for birthright trade. Everybody's happy, right? That's the trade because it's voluntary. But when you put force or fraud, then people are going to respond with anger, and that's what's happened here. Maybe he's angry at himself for not taking his suspicions more seriously. I think we've all been there before, right, where we, we knew something was going on, and we just didn't trust what the Spirit was trying to tell us or trust our sense of, of the moment, and, we, and that's very frustrating. Maybe the realization of his blindness and his ignorance has frustrated him and caused him to be angry. Maybe he's just amazed at what has taken place. It's against his will, but maybe he's already realizing that it's outside of his hands, and maybe this is even for the good. Cass says, despite himself, something that was living in him and through him gave the blessing to the Son for whom it was suited. And maybe he's connected now to Abraham in chapter 22 in a way that changes his view of the world in that moment and his empathy for his dad. Cass observes here, he suddenly finds himself in his father's place. He's just participated in sacrificing his son, so to speak, not literally, but more than metaphorically. No wonder he trembles. Oh my God, is this what my father suffered and understood and felt on Mount Moriah? Then in verse 34, we have Esau's staggering and perhaps surprising angst. The word cry here in the Hebrew is a pun with Isaac's name, which means laughter. And again, his being upset is not real surprising. He's been ripped off, right? The fraud and the force that we talked about a minute ago with Isaac. He's maybe realizing that God was sovereign. Maybe this is part of what leads to his later change in character, which is evidenced in chapter 33. 
Or maybe it's just simply he's worried about earthly and material inheritance when he didn't really care about the leadership and God stuff in chapter 25. Maybe he really does care a lot about this. The response from Isaac, short and sweet in verse 35, sorry, it's a done deal. I like what Jonathan Sachs says here. This is then a passage unusual in its literary explicitness and psychological depth of drama. We enter into Isaac's dawning realization that he has been deceived. We identify too with Esau, whose first thought is not betrayal or desire for revenge, but simple, sharp, and shocking pain. Isaac's helplessness, Esau's agonized weeping, all the more poignant given what we know of him, that he is a man of the fields, rough, not a man given to tears. The scene of the two of them together, father and son, deceived and disappointed, robbed of what should have been a moment of great tenderness and intimacy. Sachs continues by asking why God uses the narrative to draw our attention and pity to Esau, the one who does not follow God and is not chosen, quote-unquote. There's a lot of reasons for this. All people are loved by God, for one thing. Esau will be blessed. We'll see that in just a few verses. He is not chosen, per se, but he is not rejected either. Points to the consequences of sin and choices, no matter who. Even if Esau is not the chosen one, he's still harmed. He still uh, received a sense of injustice through this transaction. Maybe it's an emphasis on character versus circumstances, right? What will he do with this? It's not just what what Jacob and Rebekah and Isaac do. What will Esau do, even though he's not the chosen? What will he do with these difficult circumstances? And finally, heroes have warts and non-heroes still have virtues. It's not as easy as black and white when we look at the character of those around us. Sachs observes that Esau, who emerges from the Torah, has none of Abraham's faith, Isaac's steadfastness, or Jacob's persistence. He's carved of an altogether coarser grain, but he is not without his humanity, his filial loyalty, and a decent, if quick-tempered, disposition. Verses 36 through 40, Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I've made him lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. When you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Verse 36, Esau notes that Jacob's name is well-deserved, but then he engages in blame-shifting, himself lying and deceiving, at least in his anger. The birthright didn't involve Jacob using force or even deception. Does Isaac find out for the first time about the birthright here? Probably not, given that there's no response. It's interesting in 36 that he talks about the birthright and the blessing as though they can be separated. They're both supposed to go to the firstborn. And again, Esau had no interest in the first. Why is he interested in the second? It points to a deficiency in his character. The former typically led to the latter. And so there's a justice of a sort here that God denies Esau what he had already sold on his own. But the blessing makes the birthright official culturally. And it illustrates to us that Jacob's earlier plan had not been foolproof. Verse 37, in a nutshell, it's too late. Verse 38, Esau's pathetic and poignant persistence. And then the semi-blessing in 39 and 40, 
I've got in my notes here, ah, thanks, Dad. It's the flip side of Jacob's blessing. He's going to settle in arid lands. There's going to be a lot of use of force and uh, military, physical strength, which is ironic given his accusation and given Jacob's fraud. He's going to be willing to use force where Jacob used fraud. Neither of those are impressive. The blessing for Esau is more ambiguous. It's limited by the aggressive blessing that he gave for Jacob. And remember, Isaac was thinking that he was giving the blessing to his favored son. But it's going to be enough for both of them. And Jacob's supremacy will only last until it's abused. The rebellion prophecy is fulfilled by the Edomites in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 and 22. Again, no mention of God here. It's not where Esau is. Frankly, it doesn't seem to be particularly where Isaac is but it also may signal that Esau is not a part of the covenant. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in chapter 27 of Genesis today, and we've reached verses 41 through 46. The deceit is over. The blessing has been awarded from Isaac to Jacob. Despite the fraud, Esau has received a lesser blessing And he ain't happy about it. So let's read verses 41 through 46. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So verse 41 tells us about the grudge and Esau's plan to murder Jacob obviously his anger, and ironically his willingness to seize the birthright and the blessing by force. It had been fraud that Jacob had used, but Esau's willing to reverse that with force. A different version of Isaac's persistence and patience. We saw that from Isaac. Uh, We see something similar here with Esau. He's willing to wait till Isaac dies, which will turn out to be 40 years in the future. Vysotsky observes that in that moment, Esau wishes both his father and his brother dead. He's kind of waiting, eagerly hoping for Isaac to die so that he can kill his brother. As Cass puts it, the possibility of fratricide threatens the entire project. And the reader of Genesis is reminded of the story of Cain and Abel way back in chapter 4. It's said to himself in verse 41, but Rebekah hears about it and goes to work on Isaac and Jacob. Verses 42 and 43, good advice here, hoping the anger would fade over time and then sending him to Laban, verse 43, which is, of course, is where she had come from. It worked well for her. It could work well for Jacob as well. Verse 44, a while means literally a few days, but it would turn out to be 20 years before he would return. Now, maybe she knows that. Maybe she's underselling this to persuade and ironically deceiving him, especially with someone who's a homebody who will not be eager to go, right? He's pictured as being connected to Rebecca, and the thought of leaving for a very long time would not have worked. Or maybe she just doesn't understand what's going to take place. Either way, interesting that a few days is so far off. Verse 45, when he's no longer mad, 
Why would that be? Would he forget or hopefully forgive? I'll send for you. And actually, that wouldn't be the case. By the time it's time for him to return, she's going to be dead. Cass says Rebecca, too, sacrifices her son. The preservation of the new way requires it. In this respect, Rebecca shows her resemblance to Abraham and her superiority to Sarah. Rebecca is acting in a way that's closer to the covenant than Sarah or Isaac and much closer to Abraham. Verse 45, losing both of them, Isaac and Jacob, or more likely Jacob and Esau. If Jacob is dead, then Esau is going to be in trouble too because of capital punishment. Very similar again to Eve with Cain and Abel. Verse 46, she mentions being disgusted with Esau's wives. We saw this back in chapter 26, 34, and 35. My, my life will not be worth living. That's a bit strong, and we see exaggeration and manipulation running in the family. Remember, Esau said he was famished to death, Isaac was about to die, and she's not uh, beyond using this sort of hyperbole as well. But all that said, Rebecca has found the best available reason to send Jacob away from Esau and to get him rolling. It's aggressive but wise. Cass describes it as loving and shrewd. She doesn't mention Esau's intentions to avoid more grief for Isaac some things are better left unsaid. Beyond Jacob's safety, there's also the need for him to acquire an appropriate wife, in contrast to Esau's. Now, why had Jacob not gotten married already? Not interested, few local choices, doesn't want to travel. It's interesting that Isaac is passive and not replicating chapter 24 and how he got a wife in Rebekah. It's also in him leaving the potential to receive Isaac's now voluntary blessing indirectly encouraging Isaac to embrace that which he accidentally, carelessly did already. It also points Isaac to the right solution, rather than telling him that Jacob will leave to find a good wife. Cass says Rebecca invites Isaac to consider that his life too will have been a failure if Jacob marries badly and the line of the covenant is broken. She trusts that Isaac, in his now chastened and new state of mind, will rise to the occasion. Think again here about what's not said. There's no mention of a wife to Jacob, and there's no mention of going anywhere in particular to Isaac. Cass observes that this connects to deception and persuasion. Quote, critics of Rebecca's conduct will say that she is once again not being honest with her husband. To each of her men, Rebecca speaks fittingly. She omits the portion of the truth that would not be well received and that would thus obstruct proper conduct. Cass takes this angle. Having knowledge but lacking power, Rebecca is necessarily forced to find indirect ways to make knowledge effective. Rebecca, like Abraham, is displaying an awareness that there is a higher loyalty than that to family, even one's husband. Wittingly or not, she's acting in obedience to the needs of the covenant. And here's the kicker. This is the Bible's only reported words between Rebecca and Isaac. Cast one more time. Fittingly, it concerns the most important purpose of their marriage, the future well-being of their children and their children's children seen in relation to the new way. The initiative belongs entirely to Rebecca, but Isaac, though he does not speak, answers her precisely and perfectly through his deeds. Isaac does indeed rise to the occasion and in so doing attains his full stature as patriarch. At long last, he now plays the true father to Jacob absolutely voluntarily and without the need for deception. And that takes us to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 28. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. 
Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Padan Aram to Laban's son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. So verse 1 is a don't, and verse 2 is a do. Both of them are essential for purity of the line and of the faith, and the need to keep Jacob on the straight and narrow. Padan Aram is the same name as Aram Naharaim, which we saw back in chapter 24, verse 10. This is a 450-mile trip, and we're about to encounter Laban again, a much more detailed account this time. Now remember, Isaac had been passive in receiving the blessing from his father. Jacob is going to have to get his own wife by effort, wrestling with the world and with Laban. We'll come back to that theme later. Verses 3 and 4, he receives a second blessing and a real one this time. In the face of Jacob's deception, this is very gracious, and nothing is said about the previous event. Again, maybe Isaac is connecting back to that prophecy way back in chapter 25, verse 23. It's prior to him being sent away, so this is not a matter of him being disinherited or even that perception, and very purposeful this time rather than the accidental deception that we'd seen uh, in the blessing initially in chapter 27. The blessing is more extensive and God-centered this time. Verse 3 has El Shaddai. Verse 4 has Elohim. El Shaddai is in particular a special name of God. Verse 3 has prosperity. Verse 3 has population, 12 tribes that Jacob will have are alluded to here. And then verse 4, the reference to the land given to Abraham where he was living as an alien. Now Isaac is echoing God's covenant with Abraham, including his father's name as Isaac's last recorded word. What woke Isaac up? Was it the recent events with some reflection, perhaps in combination with the prophecy and the goading of his wife, Rebekah? Verse 5, Jacob receives the blessing properly, but is now forced to flee from the land. He ends up obeying Isaac here. It looks like piety, but really, does he have a choice? Ironically, he's made a stranger and a sojourner upon entering into the blessing. And the same is often true with us. We enter into a relationship with God or blessing from God, but that leads to growth, sometimes persecution. The cost of previous sin gets in the way. But he's going to get a new start arriving on Laban's doorstep, and we'll talk about that next week. The bottom line here is there's a rightly ordered household now and in line for the covenant as well as possible. Note verse 5 has the reversal of the names here. It's Jacob and Esau, and there's no disguises anymore. Cass observes, this is Isaac's finest hour. He initiates the meeting as he did with his beloved Esau in scene one, but this time the matter is more important than venison. Acting now with patriarchal dignity and authority, Isaac calls, blesses, and for the first time commands Jacob, who significantly will now look more reverently on his father. Maybe part of this too is Isaac wants him to get a wife like Rebecca, even after or especially because of all this. If Rebecca is read as the hero of the story, if Isaac understands that, then he wants the same for his son Jacob. So although Jacob gets the blessing, man, the costs have been huge. He will never see Rebekah again. The family is torn up. Esau wants to kill him. He flees home. He's exiled for 20 years, including the future deception by Laban. 
And what do we do with this? Again, there's the two basic options. Do we see this as fulfillment of chapter 25, verse 23's prophecy and going God's way, but using inappropriate methods? Walvert and Zook say, in a sense, Rebecca and Jacob won. Although they gained nothing, God wouldn't have given them anyway, and they lost much. God wants faith, and here we have all parties using their senses, strategies, and human strengths to inappropriately pursue the things of God. All that said, even with the negative interpretation, God's providence and plan keep moving within the free will of the characters in the story. The other way to read it, again, is that it's mostly good stuff, given the circumstances. Uh, Within the education of Isaac is the education of Jacob, from confident deceiver to fearful wanderer, but he still has a long way to go. Jacob is sobered and chastened, but probably not pious at this point. His relationship with God is far from impressive. Again, in the transmission of the faith, Isaac has not been that impressive compared to Abraham. He has finished strong, but Jacob is a mess as well. What's going to happen going forward? Can the faith be transmitted to the next generation? Cass says, however much the deception over the blessing may at last have made a patriarch out of Isaac, it did not make a pious son out of Jacob. On the contrary, a man who so easily fools his father is liable to regard his father as a fool and his father's ways as foolish. Now, what do we do with Rebecca in all this? Again, the the tension is, is she doing what she needed to do in response to her calling and and the circumstances she had, or has she pursued totally inappropriate means to godly ends? Cass takes a positive view here. He says, into the breach moves Rebecca. Thanks to her, Isaac is brought into a proper relation to his sons, his father, and the covenant. Thanks to her, Jacob is compelled to recognize and obtain the true covenantal blessings of his father. Thanks to her, fratricide for the time being is averted, and thanks to her, Jacob is sent off to find a proper wife on a journey that will also tame his cleverness and bring him at last into a more proper relation to God. Rebecca does this in the only way possible, not by force and not by confrontation, but by guile. At the same time, she acts with tact, delicacy, and affection. Though she arranges the deception, she does whatever she can to preserve and promote the dignity of her husband, whom she serves out of love. By the end, Rebecca's Isaac rises to the work of transmission and becomes truly the son of Abraham. And Rebecca's Jacob, under the command first of his mother and then of his father, goes off to prepare himself to take his father's place as a link in the covenantal chain. And finally, what do we do with Isaac? This is pretty much it for him in the narrative. He's been faithful at times. He's a mixed bag throughout, passive and reactive early, duped in the climactic story, but has the strong finish. Cass notes that Abraham cannot be a great founder or father without help from the next generations, especially his son. Quote, only if the son grows up to take the father's place is the father's work successful. Only if his way is followed does the founder truly found. And ultimately, Isaac is successful in passing on the covenant. Cass again, compared to Abraham, Isaac appears drab, passive, gullible, more victim than hero, a man of few words and prosaic deeds whose wife must be chosen for him and who never converses with God. Yet despite, or is it because of, the absence of large natural virtues, Isaac finally succeeds his father as a conveyor of the covenant. If such a son can inherit from his superior father and grow into his father's replacement, perhaps anyone can." Lord, whether you call us to the greatness of Abraham or the more mundane, mixed-bag life of Isaac, Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful, that we would progress in our faith, that we would listen to those around us who are edging us to follow in your ways. 
Good to be with you today. Previous podcasts are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Hope to catch you next time on The Word Diet.